I am presently in the midst of a preaching series going through the book of First Peter, and from time to time, whenever we have a series, especially an extended one that goes over a number of months, we have occasion to uh, take a brief break in the series for other matters that uh, may come up, and one of the ones which I'm very happy to take a break for is Reformation Sunday. Uh, today we remember... Uh, the Protestant Reformation, and especially, uh, and for this reason, the truths of Scripture that the Protestant Reformation uh, insisted upon and defended, even at the, uh, at the cost of many people losing their lives and uh, positions in society, in order that they might stand firm for the Word of God. And I would pray that our congregation would be filled with people who would do the same who would take the scripture above all as their standard, indeed their only standard, and all of it as their standard in terms of their Christian profession of faith. This morning on Reformation Sunday, we're going to be considering a subject that may seem a little unusual because the subject will call for us to, um, to look at the differences among two major branches of the Protestant Reformation, the Lutheran and the Reformed. And so before I get underway and before we even look at God's Word this morning, I want, by way of introduction, to explain that the Lutheran Church is a real ally with the Reformed Church when it comes to matters of the Protestant Reformation, that you will find Lutherans, those who are faithful, conservative Lutherans, just as excited um, this morning about the Protestant Reformation as those of us who are Calvinistic, those who are called Reformed who trace their lineage back to the Swiss Reformation in Scotland. The differences between the Lutherans and the Calvinists do not take away their brotherly affection for one another and do not disturb our commitment, our mutual commitment to the Holy Catholic Church, not Roman Catholic, the Holy Catholic Church, the one that is universal, where all those who profess gospel doctrine, that is, the doctrines of grace, knowing that we do not save ourselves in any sense by our works, but rather by the free mercy of God. Those who profess that are all part of the Holy Catholic Church, Lutherans and Calvinists alike. And so please don't forget that as we continue on with our exposition this morning, because though we will eventually come to matters of difference, those matters, I trust, both in the eyes of Lutherans and the Calvinists, are matters to be settled by the Word of God and not to be swept under the rug. We live in a day and age where the lowest common denominator is really the goal of our theology, where we don't emphasize distinctives or those things which distinguish us from others. We don't put an emphasis upon differences. In fact, we, almost with embarrassment, pretend that they aren't there. Well, there's two very bad things about that policy. The first is that it's displeasing to the Lord to pretend that those differences are not there. The second, it's displeasing to the Lord because we're to be holding for the whole counsel of God, even if that means we have to say to our Christian brother, our Christian brother, not apostate, our Christian brother, that we have differences of opinion that need to be resolved by the authority of God's word. The second reason why that's a very poor policy is because it just won't work. If we could ignore these differences, we wouldn't be in this particular church or this particular denomination. There wouldn't be a separate Lutheran denomination or actually a series of them, even as there are a series of Presbyterian or Calvinistic denominations. If those differences were so um, insignificant 
they could be put aside, then they would have been put aside. And if they are so insignificant that they should be put aside, they will be put aside today. Let's call a truce. Let's no longer have these differences. But the differences haven't been resolved, and for that reason it's important for us, even as we rejoice in the truth of the Reformation, the biblical truth about justification by faith, and rejoice with our Lutheran brothers in that, we need to understand also why the church has been splintered further by differences between Lutherans and Calvinists. Well, now with all that historical background, what possibly could we read in the Word of God that would be of help to us? It sounds like we're engaging in some kind of an exercise in church tradition, aren't we? But we aren't. These are biblical issues, and for our edification this morning and background to the conclusion of my discussion of the Lutheran-Calvinist controversy, I'd like you to turn to Romans, the fifth chapter. Romans, chapter 5. Now I'll read the first 11 verses. Hear now God's word at Romans 5.1. Being therefore justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have had our access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we also rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation worketh steadfastness, and steadfastness approvedness, and approvedness hope. And hope putteth not to shame, because the love of God hath been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which was given unto us. For a while we were weak, yet weak, in due season, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, for peradventure for the good man someone would even dare to die. But God commendeth his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, shall we be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more being reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And thus far, the reading of God's Word. On this Reformation Sunday, let me begin by asking if you understand why the Roman Catholic Church finds the idea of the Protestant Reformation so abhorrent. Do you understand why the division of the church on earth is such an abhorrent thing in the eyes of those who follow the Roman Catholic dogma? Uh, I'm going to tell you something which undoubtedly you've heard before, but you maybe have not drawn the connection. The reason, above all, why the Reformation or any division in the church is so absolutely abhorrent in the eyes of the Roman Catholic Church is because the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the church is Christ incarnate and therefore infallible. The church is Christ incarnate and therefore infallible. A person that will not be known to many of you, but those who have studied uh, the history of dogma will know a very important name, John Adam Moeller, who died in 1838. He was a German Roman Catholic living at the time in which the Lutheran Church was fighting rationalism and pietism in Germany. 
Moeller was a Catholic, however, I should say a Romanist. He served professorships at Tübingen in Munich and was dean of Würzburg. His most celebrated work was a work entitled Symbolism, or Exposition of the Doctrinal Differences Between Catholics and Protestants as Evidenced by Their Symbolical Writings. That was first published in 1832. It went through five editions in the next six years. And the most illustrious religious writer of the period, Friedrich Schleiermacher, the father of modern liberalism, Friedrich Schleiermacher pronounced Moeller's work the severest blow ever delivered against Protestantism. William Cunningham, who is a name if you do much reading in doctrine, is one of our friends, the master of Calvinist theology and history, who uh, served as the principal of New College, Edinburgh, from 1847 to 1861, wrote in his massive work, Historical Theology, that Moeller was, and I quote, the most skillful and accomplished defender of popery in the present century. And so I give this background just so you'll understand the significance of what I'm going to quote for you now from John Adam Moeller, who in the middle of the 19th century was the person who was saying the Protestants are wrong, compare their dogma to that of the Roman Catholic Church, and you'll see that they are wrong. And he explains the differences this way. Thus, the visible church is the Son of God himself, everlastingly manifesting himself among men in a human form, the permanent incarnation of the same. The church, his permanent manifestation, is at once divine and human. If the divine, the living Christ and his spirit, constitute that which is infallible and eternally inerrable in the church, so also the human is infallible and inerrable in the same way. On this account, the church, in the Catholic point of view, can as little fail in the pure preservation of the word as in any other part of her task. She is infallible. She must be inerrable. Hence it is with the profoundest love, reverence, and devotion that the Catholic embraces the church. The very thought of resisting her, of setting himself up in opposition to her will, is one against which his inmost feelings revolt to which his whole nature is abhorrent. And to bring about a schism, to destroy unity, is a crime before whose heinousness his bosom trembles and from which his soul recoils. Eloquent words. Did you see the point? If you truly, from the heart, receive the doctrine that the Roman Catholic Church is the continuing manifestation of Christ on earth, the body of the Lord, after all, the body of Christ, if you believe in the Roman Catholic sense that the church is the incarnation of Christ on earth and is infallible so that her doctrine cannot err, if you believe that, then the idea of revolting from the church is the same as revolting from the Lord himself. And no one should be willing to do that. At the First Vatican Council, which met in 1870, just a few years after Moeller's influence, the Roman church acknowledged that the church was infallible, especially in the declarations of its ecumenical councils, it was said, and then went on, somewhat controversially at that time, to attribute this infallibility to the person of the Pope as well as he speaks ex cathedra, that is, from his particular chair of authority. The second Vatican Council, to come up now to our own day, in, which met 1962 to 1964, the Second Vatican Council declared in its dogmatic constitution on the church, and I quote, 
that the bishops infallibly proclaimed Christ's doctrine provided that while maintaining the bond of unity among themselves and with Peter's successor, that is, as long as they're still in harmony with the Pope, and while teaching authentically on a matter of faith or morals, they concur in a single viewpoint as the one which must be held conclusively. And now listen to these words. This authority is even more clearly verified when gathered together in an ecumenical council. They are teachers and judges of faith and morals for the universal church. Their definitions must then be adhered to with the submission of faith. By the way, the language submission of faith is technical jargon in Roman Catholic theology, meaning without any reservation, from the heart, conscience bound, they submit to the teaching of the church and its ecumenical councils. Well, so my first point then is the reason there should never have been a Protestant Reformation according to the Roman doctrine is because the church is infallible and what it declares in its ecumenical councils cannot be opposed. What has been declared in the ecumenical councils of the Roman Catholic Church, <coughs> it would take far too long to discuss all of it, so let me go to the heart of the matter. The Roman Catholic Church has always maintained, and still does to this day, the infallibility of what's declared in its ecumenical councils, and the most famous of those councils was the one called in response to the Protestant Reformation, the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent spanned the years 1545 to 1563. By the way, Calvin died in the year following uh, the last year of the Council of Trent. He wrote an extended antidote to the doctrines of Trent, uh, most of the ones that had been published by the time he died. Now the bishop gathered at the Council of Trent wrote these words back to Rome, and I quote, the significance of this council in the theological sphere lies chiefly in the article on justification. In fact, this is the most important item the council has to deal with. The infallible Roman Catholic Church says that the doctrine of justification from Trent the most important theological point they took up there. And remember that what Trent declared was infallible and to this day is infallible, even at the Second Vatican Council being affirmed as such. So what is the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification? And please don't be misled. The Roman Catholic doctrine of justification is not what any particular Roman Catholic says. We're not talking about finding some particular priest today who might have come to Luther's insight. That doesn't make his views the Roman Catholic view. The Roman Catholic view of justification is defined by the church in its ecumenical councils. And the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification as infallibly declared at the Council of Trent and never revoked, never corrected, and never amended to this day is that the whole ground of our acceptance with God is made to be what we are and what we do. Let me explain that. The whole ground of our acceptance with God is made to be what we are, namely infused with the righteousness of Jesus Christ at the outset of a process called justification. What we are as infused with Christ's righteousness and then what we do by the real merit of our subsequent good works is what brings us justification. In particular, you need to know that the Council of Trent taught that man in his will must cooperate toward disposing and preparing itself for obtaining the grace of justification. The Council of Trent taught that men must prepare themselves by cooperating with God's grace, prepare themselves to receive the grace of justification. 
Now, to prepare to receive it, to make yourself susceptible to God's grace is obviously not the result of God's grace then. I mean, because you're making yourself susceptible to it, which is to say preparing to receive it. Uh, To put it uh, very bluntly, Moeller, as he um, reflects on the Council of Trent, says that in the Romanist view, regeneration is a theandric work. That's a word you don't run across very often, even in works of scholarship. He explains it, though. He says, A theandric work in which we find two operations concurring, the divine and the human. And then he goes on to say, Man must let himself be excited. Here he means in the context of God's vivifying power, God giving life. God is beginning to approach man. Man must allow himself to be excited and follow with freedom. God offers his aid to raise the sinner after his fall, yet it is for the sinner to consent. Through his faithful cooperation, he is exalted again gradually. The divine spirit's omnipotence suffers human freedom to set it at a bound, which it cannot break through. In short, there is no irresistible grace. That men, even though they are spiritually dead, must prepare their hearts for the grace of justification, must make themselves susceptible to saving grace, and that the Spirit of God cannot break through their human freedom and change them. They must cooperate with God's grace. Now listen to the Council of Trent, Canon 9, and I want to remind you the words at the end, let him be anathema, which you don't hear often, mean let him go to hell forever. He is accursed. And this is what it says. If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. The infallible declaration of curse, everlasting curse, is upon any of us who dare say we don't prepare ourselves by our own works to receive the grace of justification. Now, what is it that happens after a man has prepared himself, allegedly, by Roman Catholic doctrine? After a man has prepared himself for justification and cooperated in his regeneration, Rome says that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is not simply imputed to the account of that man, but is infused in him as an inherent quality of his soul. And so the Council of Trent said that justification is not merely remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the inward man. Now at this point, we might be inclined to draw back and say, oh, well, we've got simply a verbal dispute. They include under the title justification everything we include under justification and sanctification, and that's all there is to it. That would be such a shallow reading of history, though. You would have to fail if you proposed that in a paper you would write to a theology professor. No, that isn't at all what's at stake. Listen to Canon 11 of the Council of Trent. If anyone saith that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ to the exclusion of the grace and charity which is inherent in them, let him be anathema, cursed forever. For you see, according to Roman Catholic doctrine, God justifies based on the actual righteousness that he sees in me, that has been infused in me, from Jesus Christ. It is not imputation, therefore, but it is infusion that is the basis of my justification. 
And now, to make it worse, justification progresses according to the Council of Trent and is carried further by man's cooperation in good works. And these good works are explicitly said not to be the fruit of justification, but rather the cause of justification. And I read 10 and 24. If anyone say that the said good works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be accursed. And so from beginning to end, from man preparing his heart to be susceptible to the grace of justification, to man being justified because he has actual inherent righteousness infused in him, to man's good works progressing his justification and being the cause of that, from beginning to end, men merit their salvation. And the Council of Trent was not shy to say that, for the Council infallibly declares, and I read from chapter 16 of the uh, Confession, life eternal is faithfully rendered to their good works and merits. Those who are justified are said by those very works to have truly merited eternal life. Well, I'll tell you that as a Christian minister, I have nothing further to say, and I have no ministry if I can't stand before you today and say that is hell-damning doctrine. That if that is not false, I don't know what can be said about the doctrine of salvation that is not false. I'd like to offer to you a very quick but biblical refutation of that infallible teaching. I'd like to show you that those of us who believe those very things I've read to you are not accursed, but it's just the opposite. Ask yourself, can the sinner prepare himself and make himself susceptible to justification by works? Can the sinner prepare himself and make himself susceptible? Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. Those who have not come to saving faith cannot please God. Romans 14.23 says, Whatever is not of faith is sin. The works of the natural man are always sinful and abhorrent in the eyes of God. As Romans 8.8 says, They that are in the flesh cannot please him. Can man, according to the Bible, prepare his heart for justification? Can he cooperate in regeneration? Can he make himself susceptible to God's mercy? Not at all. Can the sinner do anything to cooperate in his spiritual regeneration? John 1.13 says, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We don't do anything to bring about our spiritual rebirth. Indeed, Ephesians 2.5 says, When you were dead through your trespasses, God made you alive together with Christ. And Paul says, parenthetically, By grace have you been saved. If you believe in the doctrines of grace, you must believe that regeneration is the work of God and not the work of man. Man cannot cooperate in that. Can a dead man cooperate in his being brought back to life? Can a child cooperate in its being conceived and born? No. Rebirth, spiritual resurrection, are solely the works of God. We are passive in that, not active. And does God justify those who are inherently righteous, having been infused with the righteousness of Christ as a real quality of their soul? Not at all. We read in our scripture passage this morning that Christ died for the ungodly, that they might be justified by his blood. God justifies the ungodly. On Roman Catholic doctrine, he justifies those who are truly righteous as an inherent quality of their souls, having graciously been infused. It's graciously infused, but the fact is it's based on what they are. 
and not on the alien righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to their account. Finally, let me ask you, do our good works in any way merit eternal life? Luke 17, verse 10 is something you must consult. If you ever get it into your, eye, your, eye, into your mind, the idea that, uh, that the righteousness that God has given us in Christ as an inherent quality and the righteousness that we perform by our good works somehow merit eternal life. Luke 17, 10 says, Jesus has used the analogy of a slave who comes in from a day's work and has obeyed his master completely. And he said, I'll read verse 9. Doth he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded? Even so ye also, when ye shall have done all the things that are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done that which is our duty to do. If you have done everything that God tells you to do, which of course none of us do anyway, but if you'd done everything, you still wouldn't merit eternal life. Because all of our works are tainted by sin. And even if they weren't, God gives it to us. God gives us salvation as a gift. Romans 6.23 authoritatively declares that it's not on the basis of wages, but only on the basis of gift that we are saved. Ephesians 2.10 says that it's not by good works in which we can take any credit that we are saved. Remember what Paul said in Romans 4.4, Now to him who works, the reward is not reckoned as of grace, but as of debt. And so ask yourself, even if I'm infused with the righteousness of Christ, even if I do good works, is God in my debt? Does he owe me salvation? And the Bible says, absolutely not. It's the free gift of God. And so despite Rome's consistent claim to infallibility, we must say that its doctrine of justification... We must say about that doctrine of justification exactly what Paul said about the Judaizers in his day who likewise undermined God's grace and salvation by, work, by basing it in some measure on works. Paul said in Galatians 1.8, But though we or an angel from heaven should preach unto you any gospel other than that which we preach to you, let him be anathema. And so this morning you must consider the anathema of the alleged infallible Roman Catholic Church over against the anathema of the in fact infallible Word of God. Is justification in any sense based upon my merit? No. But solely upon the grace of God. Now toward the end of the year 1512, an Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther was reading the book of Romans in his monastery cell and he came, as he said, to the gate of paradise. He came to Romans 1.17 where Paul says, For therein is revealed the righteousness of God from faith unto faith, as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. Luther, as you all will know the story, and I don't have time to rehearse for you, Luther recognized in that the salvation of his soul, that he could not, through any of his penance, through any of his works, merit the goodness of God and his salvation. Luther also recognized that it's for failure to see and to purely preach that that the Roman Catholic Church had degenerated into the worship of relics, the selling of indulgences, the idea that salvation comes through the sacerdotal service of a Roman Catholic priest and other such heresies. And so intending to reform the church from within, not having any intention to break with the church of Rome, Luther posted the 95 theses, that is, propositions for debate, 
he posted them on the uh, Castle Church door in Wittenberg on October 31st in 1517. He centered his propositions on the selling of indulgences. Now, the person who was profiting the most from the sale of indulgences in that area was the Archbishop of Mainz. He complained to the Pope about this, and the Pope asked the head of Luther's monastic order to silence him. But what happened is that a few others, not the least of which, Eck, the theology professor, wrote against Luther, Luther's theses, and so that led Luther then to reply with a book entitled Resolutions. This was then increasing the controversy within the church, and in July of 1518, the Pope summoned Luther to Rome, where he, by the way, would have died as a heretic. There's no question about that. Frederick, the elector of Saxony, had the summons canceled, however, in order to protect Luther, and so the Pope then empowered his delegate, Cajetan, to order Luther before him in Augsburg, but uh, Cajetan found that Luther was not to be persuaded, and so he went to the Pope and asked a bull condemning Luther's views without mentioning Luther by name. Then John Eck challenged Luther to a debate over the supremacy of the Pope, and in 1519 was held perhaps the most important debate of the Reformation period, the Leipzig Disputation. Eck and Luther were pretty evenly matched, except that Eck had maneuvered Luther into saying that he agreed with John Huss, and that the church had unjustly condemned Huss. And that's all it took. Eck went to Rome from that point and sought the excommunication of Luther. By the way, as an aside, Martin Bootser, perhaps the most important Calvinistic writer of the period was won over to the Protestant cause at the Leipzig Disputation. He was in the audience at the time. Following this debate, as I told you, Eck sought Luther's excommunication from the Pope, but Luther published his own account of the debate, which was uh, circulated around Europe, and then he circulated his own pamphlet, an important one entitled On Good Works. Well, what this led to was in 1520, the 15th of June, the Pope signed the bull of excommunication against Luther, ordered all of his books burned, and forbade him to ever preach, giving him 60 days to recant publicly. Luther um, was not of a mind to bow to the infallible authority of the Roman Catholic Church when it taught contrary to the Word of God. So Luther responded with a tract which some people would say is uh, not tempered with moderation, but which I think is entirely appropriate, entitled, Against the Execrable Bull of the Antichrist. Luther said, I will not listen to the bull of a man who is set against the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so he wrote three other tracts to rally the Germans against Rome. And then Luther burned Rome's books, the canon law, and the Pope's bull of excommunication on December 10, 1520. For that, the emperor now, finally, uh, the emperor, the German nation, summoned him to the diet which was convened at Worms. You always have to say it that way, because otherwise it comes out the diet of worms, and children never understand how you can have a diet of worms. Worms is a city in Germany, and a diet was a place where the heads of the state and the church met together in convocation, and so the diet convened at Worms, or Worms, met in 1521. That's the famous scene where Luther was asked to recant of what he had done, what he had said. Luther very adroitly asked for 24 hours to reconsider. What was the council to do? So they said, all right, you have your 24 hours. Luther comes back 24 hours later. He says, unless I'm convinced by evident reason or the scriptures, I don't know what else I can do. 
I mean, we have it very nicely in many movies, you know, Luther standing up against the council, and here I stand, I can do no other. Um, and I, I'm, I'm stirred by that sort of thing, but I don't think it's very likely he, he did it that way. I think it's much more likely that Luther went back to the council and he said, well, I mean, what am I supposed to do? I said, I'm bound by conscience to the Scripture, and unless you can show me in Scripture that it's wrong, then I, I just have to take my stand, and, and God help me. What was the council to do? Providence of God. It was late in the day and the council couldn't act. It was almost dark. Uh, we read that uh, the candles were burnt out and everything. Everyone went home. Luther was dismissed, and on his way back to Wittenberg, the elector of Saxony, Frederick, kidnapped him, quote-unquote, for his own safety and for ten months put him up at the castle of Wartburg in order that he might have safekeeping. Where there he translated the New Testament into German and wrote many important theological tracts and then returned and preached for eight days straight in Wittenberg to reform and create what became the Lutheran Church. That's a stirring story, but it's not the end of the story. Because Luther is a man that we must give thanks to God for, for his boldness, for his insight, for his consistency, that he would stand against the tyranny of Rome to maintain justification by faith. Luther wasn't the only man to see these things, however. You need to understand that. Zwingli in Zurich had already begun to see these things in Scripture. In 1518, before Luther was excommunicated, Zwingli was reforming the church in Zurich, Switzerland. All right. Jacques Lefebvre in France was already teaching these things, and John Calvin came under his influence eventually. There were others around who saw these things. Luther became the celebrated cause, and we thank God for Luther because he stood in the gap. And all of Western Christendom should be thankful that Luther did that. I don't know that a, that a Zwingli or a Calvin could have done it. Luther's fiery personality, his courage was needed at that point. But Luther was not a theologian par excellence. He was a reformer, and he was a preacher, and he was a prophet. But his long suit was not theology, pure and simple. You see, Zwingli had begun to reform the church in Zurich, as I told you, and Zwingli's approach to worship was somewhat different than Luther's. Because, you see, Zwingli didn't wish to retain any elements from the Roman Catholic Church any features unless they were required by God's Word. His regulative principle of worship was, if it's not required in Scripture, it is forbidden to us. Luther's approach was just the opposite. Luther said, if it's not explicitly forbidden, it's permitted to us. And so what happened is that in the Swiss churches and in the German churches, a com not a completely different, but a vastly different style of worship was developing. Zwingli did away with altars did away with relics, did away with icons, did away with vestments, did away with the Roman liturgy, rejected the Mass, Luther did not. Luther rejected the sacrificial character of the Mass, retained the Mass, retained the vestments, retained the altars and the icons, continued to elevate the host. And it's on that particular point, the elevation of the host, that the Protestant Church falls into factions. Because you say, well, what's so important about that? Isn't that just part of the, the, the beauty or symbolism of the worship? No, it's much more. Luther elevated the host because he was in agreement with the Roman Church that Christ was bodily present in the elements. Zwingli did not believe that. Calvin did not believe that. And therefore, they did not elevate the host. 
And that's why in most Reformed churches to this day, you will find it a, a very important point that the communion table, not an altar, the communion table be found on the same level with the people. Not elevated above them, as though it somehow is the body of Christ and to be revered in that sense. Well, you say that's just the beginning of a controversy, and it was. I mean, here's a very sad thing. Philip of Hesse recognized the need for unity among the Protestants. And so he arranged in 1529 for a conference at Marburg where he bid Luther and Melanchthon to come, Zwingli and Oikolampadius and Bootser, the five leaders of the Reformation at that point. They were all present at the colloquy of Marburg. And there Luther insisted on a literal reading of, This is my body. And he refused at the end of the colloquy to shake hands with Zwingli and his disciples, saying that the Swiss brethren were unfaithful men. From that point on, the division between Luther and the Swiss brothers increased. Even though they stood together against Rome, and though they supported each other in many doctrines such as justification, the division had been created, and had been created by the fiery Luther. In 1530, the next year, the Lutherans met at the Diet of Augsburg and drew up their statement of faith, the Augsburg Confession. This brings me then to the conclusion of the matter, how it is that the Lutherans, in their particular doctrinal formulations, have differed from the Calvinistic churches. There is something which is an injustice of history having to do with the use of terms. Um, I... I I'm on the favorable side of this injustice. I mean, I benefit from it, I suppose, but I think it's an injustice. And that's that in the use of terminology, the Calvinistic or Swiss churches have come to be called Reformed, the Lutheran Evangelical, although in our country Evangelical has a much broader meaning. But the Lutheran Evangelical is divided against the Calvinistic or Reformed. And that's why the title of this morning's message is The Lutherans Reformational. Praise God. Reformational, but not Reformed. They are not the same as the Calvinists, and I'd like to explain to you why as we finish up this morning. Since the time of the Reformation, the Protestant world has been divided into two basic families classified in all of your ancient uh, theology books as Lutheran and Reformed. The Lutheran churches follow the Augsburg Confession, the Articles of Small Called, and the Formula of Concord. The Calvinistic churches follow the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort, and the Westminster Standards. Now, there is much on which these two Protestant groups agree against Romanism, so much that when Moeller wrote his famous 19th century work in defense of the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, he lumped Calvin and Luther together on most points. He did draw some distinctions, but he was writing against them both as the common foe. And nevertheless, as I already have told you, the differences between Calvinists and Lutherans are so significant that they have been kept apart for these many years by them. And I'd like to illustrate those differences are for you. First, regarding the sovereignty of God. Lutheran theology, and one more caveat, remember that Lutheran theology doesn't necessarily mean Luther. Lutheran theology far more means Melanchthon and the Lutheran theologians who followed Luther and formulated many of these things. In, in some things it does mean Luther, the doctrine of worship and, and the Lord's Supper, yes. But on some of these points about the sovereignty of God and others, I'm not sure that Luther wouldn't have stood closer to Calvin than Melanchthon did. But nevertheless, the Lutheran church is now formed by these confessions of faith which say about the sovereignty of God 
that with respect to man as a free moral agent, God foreordains only the good actions of men and never their bad actions, never their bad behavior. So that Lutheranism insists that God never predestines the damnation of anyone. Regarding the person of Jesus Christ, the Lutheran Church teaches in its official doctrines that within the person of Jesus Christ, the human nature of Christ partakes of the divine nature's attributes or qualities. This doctrine is called the communicatio idiomatum, the communication of attributes. The divine qualities of the divine nature are communicated to the human nature so that the body of Christ shares the omnipresence of God. Which is to say the body of Christ is everywhere. Regarding the nature of man, Lutheran theology teaches that after his fall into sin, man no longer retained the image of God, and that that image is only recovered by the regenerate. Fallen man is not the image of God. Regarding the atoning death of Jesus Christ, Lutheran theology teaches that God's intention is that the grace of the gospel be absolutely universal. Thus, Christ died equally and in the same sense for all men. Regarding the Holy Spirit's work in salvation, Lutheran theology says that God gives his saving grace to all men. Those who end up being lost are lost only because they effectively resist the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. There is no difference between the grace given to the saved and the grace given to the lost. The difference is simply that the lost persistently resist the Spirit's work, but the saved yield to it. And so Lutheran theology teaches that in regeneration, the human will must cooperate with divine grace by yielding to its overtures. Regarding the perseverance of the saints, Lutheran theology teaches that justifying faith in salvation, the actual remission of sins, can be lost by those who commit mortal sins like adultery. And regarding the Lord's Supper, Lutheran theology teaches that in the elements of the Lord's Supper, the body of Jesus Christ is really, literally, physically present in, with, and under these elements. Finally, as for the working of the sacraments, Lutheran theology teaches that the grace which is conveyed by the sacraments is necessary to salvation and is conveyed ordinarily by no other means than these. Moreover, in adults, the efficacy of the sacraments depends upon their activating faith. And in infants, Lutheran theology teaches that baptism creates true, actual, and life-giving faith. So that you have a small child baptized, faith, Actual faith has been created in the soul of that infant. Now, on all of these points, there are others, I think, of lesser significance, but on all of these points, the Reformed churches have always said no, that this is not right, it is not the whole counsel of God, it is not pure doctrine. Regarding the sovereignty of God, we cannot teach that God does not predestine the damnation of any. And after all, we read in Romans the ninth chapter that God has certain vessels that have been, what? been created for destruction, that he's the one who formed them as the potter has power over the clay to do that. In 1 Peter 2.8, we read of men who have rejected the word of God as they were destined to do so. 
In Ephesians 1.11, Paul says, God works all things after the counsel of his own will. So that God's sovereignty is not restricted just to the good things that men do. It covers all the things that men do, including the arch crime of history, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, which according to Acts, the second chapter, was performed by the determinate counsel of God by his foreknowledge. Regarding the person of Christ, the idea that the human body of Christ is dispersed throughout the universe, that it's omnipresent, there is no support for that in Scripture whatsoever. In fact, Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ is now seated at the right hand of God. No suggestion that he is found everywhere. He is rather seated locally at the right hand of God. As to the nature of man, the Calvinists have always taught that though men have marred the image of God and are abusing it, they continue after the fall to be God's image. And I think you'll find that in Genesis 9-6. It's because man is the image of God that capital punishment's required for the murderer. As to Christ's atoning death, Jesus said he laid down his life for the sheep, not for the goats. The Bible tells us that he died for a peculiar people. He died for the church. Those passages that suggest that he died for all are passages teaching that he died for all kinds of men, Jew and Gentile, fat and thin, black and white, whatever you may have. That his dying for all men does not mean that all men have been atoned, for if it means that, then the justice of God requires that all men be saved. Now, I think perhaps the most important, however, of all the differences between Calvinists and Lutherans comes right here when we talk about the Holy Spirit's work in salvation. According to Lutheran dogma, the Holy Spirit would work regeneration in all men, but some men resist. And it's only because of man's resistance that those men are not saved. It's only because those who end up being saved yield to the overtures of the Spirit, they end up being born again and can be saved. In 1930, Virgilius Firm authored a book entitled What is Lutheranism? And he had the leading professors in the Lutheran Church write to express what they saw as the essence of Lutheranism. And I'd like to read a portion from J.M. Rue as we conclude because it will, I think, nicely and graphically illustrate the differences that I've been talking about here. I'm, I'm reading now the words of a Lutheran professor. What is the distinctive characteristic of the Lutheran Church? One might say it's the doctrine of justification by faith, the material principle of, the, of Protestantism. And certainly that church can no longer be called Lutheran, in which the blessed truth that the sinner is justified before God by grace, for Christ's sake through faith, does not permeate all teaching faith in life. But does not also the Church of Calvin, where it has remained true to the faith of its founders, teach the solus Christus, sola gratia, sola fides, as least, at least with regard to those who are predestined to salvation from eternity? Another point might be the formal principle of Protestantism, the sola scriptura, as the peculiar characteristic of Lutheranism. And it is just as true that the Lutheran Church, which desires to stand on the principles laid down by the Reformation, can never give up the doctrine that the Holy Scriptures alone are and must remain the source and norm for all Christian faith and life. But does not the Church of Calvin also proclaim this doctrine? Of course, the Lutheran Church places a much stronger emphasis upon both the material principle as well as the formal principle of the Reformation. I don't think so, but they say so. Then do the Reformed Churches. And yet, in these two chief doctrines, there are more points in which they agree than there are points in which they differ. 
I do think that's right. And we're brothers for that reason. Therefore, it would hardly be correct to regard either one or both of these doctrines as the distinguishing characteristic, the peculiar possession of the Lutheran Church. What then is the distinguishing mark of the Lutheran Church? And I skip to the place where he gives the answer. Assurance of salvation. Assurance of communion with God is to this day the distinctive characteristic of the Lutheran Church. He explains why they have that over against Rome, and then he turns the guns on the Calvinists. He says, Calvin recognized that there should be no mediation of the church between the sinner and God. He linked men, I'm sorry, he linked man who lives on earth directly with the God who lives and has his being in the world above. So that according to Calvin, every human, temporal, worldly factor is excluded and man's salvation depends entirely upon God and his eternal will. Before the beginning of time, God has determined whom he would lead to faith and salvation in the course of the ages. And in the case of him whom God has predestined to salvation, God's saving will will finally be accomplished. He will live and die in faith. According to this doctrine, man's salvation seems to be taken out of his own hands and made secure forever. For surely there is nothing more secure than the eternal will of God. And yet it gives rise to two serious questions. And I'll summarize them. First of all, how can an individual be sure that he's elect? Calvinists say by examining his life to see good works as visible proof of his faith. To which Dr. Rue answers, on the contrary, this will cause unrest and uncertainty, especially in the hearts of those who sincerely tremble for their salvation. If we must look at the quality of our lives to be assured, he says, then we'll never have assurance of salvation. Secondly, he says, Calvinists can never effectively answer whether God really leaves his heavenly home and takes up communion with man because the sacraments are merely signs and symbols of his grace. Let me put it to you very, very easily. A bottom line is, as this man is writing, the difference between Calvinists and Lutherans is, there, is our doctrine of predestination, which they don't like, and their doctrine of the sacraments, which we don't like. That's what it comes down to. That we believe that God predestines all things. They believe that God does not predestine men to hell. And secondly, in their doctrine of the sacraments, they believe God takes up literal communion with man, in, especially in the Lord's Supper, and we do not. And so the author ends, over against Rome as well as Geneva, Calvin's home, over against Rome as well as Geneva, the distinctive characteristic of Lutheranism is that it is the religion of assurance, assurance of salvation, assurance of communion with God. Lutheranism can never give up the universality of God's will for salvation. Moreover, God, um, God and man come together, or rather God brought the man who did not resist into his literal communion. Should we be Lutherans today? No. I think we ought to be Reformed. And I think we ought to be Reformed because that's the only way to be true to the best insights of Martin Luther at the time of the Reformation. What was Luther fighting? Can you remember that far back when I began this morning? Remember when I explained the Roman Catholic doctrine that says man must cooperate with the grace of God in salvation? Luther was right because he saw that we have no merit by which we can cooperate, no merit on the basis of which God could justify us. But Luther did not give up, or the Lutherans did not give up, the idea that man must cooperate with the grace of God. Lutherans continue to teach that in regeneration we must not resist the Holy Spirit's work. I want to suggest to you that that is, in fact, 
the way to undermine all confidence of our salvation. Because if the Holy Spirit can in fact be resisted, if God is not sovereign in the operations of his Spirit for our salvation, then how can any of us be sure that we will not effectively resist beginning tomorrow, beginning this afternoon, beginning right now? How can any of us be sure that what God has begun in us, He will accomplish to the day of salvation? How can any of us be sure that the Holy Spirit, having begun that kind of work in us, will not be thwarted finally? And how can any of us stand here and say with purity, consistency, that salvation is purely of the grace of God when we know, in fact, it came to us because we were good enough not to resist? No, I think that the Lutherans are our brothers, and we thank God for the Reformation and what they stood for. But we must see this morning that if we're going to be reformed and give all glory to the grace of God and have the assurance of salvation that Dr. Rue is talking about, we'll only have it if we're true to the Calvinistic creeds. Now, they too need to be reformed. This morning's message is not to the point that we are now the infallible church. There is no infallible church. There's only an infallible authority for the church in the word of God. We have broken with Rome because it declares itself to have the authority of scripture and teaches contrary to it. We are not yet at one with the Lutheran church because it has not consistently been true to the idea of the doctrine of grace, that God sovereignly initiates, God sovereignly begins, and God sovereignly concludes the process. Lutheran theology. That's a challenge. Not something that we should hate. It's a challenge to let our Lutheran brothers come to see what we enjoy as the assurance of our salvation today. It would be retrogression for us to be Lutherans, and that's why we must continue in the Reformed Church but it would be less than charitable and Catholic for us not to include them in our prayers and to encourage them in the continuing process of Reformation in our own day. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would humble us, humble us all before your word today and give us true humility of soul that we might recognize that we have nothing in ourselves to offer to you, not even a lack of resistance. Because we know that if it were not for your grace, we would be fighting, scratching, clawing, and screaming against the kingdom of God. How we thank you that you have drug us into your kingdom. How we thank you that you have taken men who are spiritually dead and given them life. How we thank you that you've taken people who had nothing to say about it and given them new birth. Father, we want to give you all praise this morning. We want to bow before your authority and the authority of your word. And because we do that to recognize that everything we are and everything we shall ever be is due to your grace. And that is our only assurance, Father. We know that if we were to look to ourselves, if we were to trust in our own works to be justified or trust in our own works to be sanctified, that we wouldn't have much trust left at all. And so, Father, we pray that you might strengthen our hearts this morning, that we might see where the true foundations lie, that we might see Jesus Christ in all of his glory, that we might see your sovereign work of salvation, a work which no man can resist, a work that will bring those for whom you have saved and those to whom you give justification will bring them to eternal glory. We pray that you might help us to be strengthened by the recognition of that and all the more joyful this morning that we are your people. 
freed from the tyranny of church authorities, freed from the tyranny of our own good works, and resting securely in the only place we can rest, and that's the sovereign mercy of our Father. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, we pray. Amen.